We put all the cops in minority neighborhoods. Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. And the way you get guns out of kids' hands is to throw them up against the wall and frisk them. These were the words of former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg, as recounted by German Lopez in his Vox article titled, Mike Bloomberg's Stop and Frisk Problem Explained. This widely publicized quote of Bloomberg describing the ways in which he specifically used stop and frisk policies in minority communities might be considered to be a quite startling affirmation of the systemic racism that is deeply embedded within the criminal justice system of the United States. In the Washington Post article titled, Here's What You Need to Know About Stop and Frisk and Why the Courts Shut It Down, the author's article, Dylan Matthews, describes how, quote, Stop, question, and frisk is an NYPD policy wherein police will detain and question pedestrians and potentially search them if they have a reasonable suspicion that the pedestrian in question committed is committing or is about to commit a felony or a penal law misdemeanor, end quote. As Lopez recollects, Bloomberg inherited the policy of stop and frisk from his mayoral predecessor, Rudy Giuliani, and intensified it. Bloomberg and Giuliani's use of stop and frisk was unfortunately just one of the many examples of criminal justice policies that specifically targeted people of color. To Bloomberg's credit, he did eventually apologize for his role in promoting and enforcing stop and frisk policies on such a large scale, saying, according to Lopez, that, quote, I defended it, looking back for too long, because I didn't understand the unintended pain it was causing to young black and brown families and their kids. I should have acted sooner and faster to stop it. I didn't, and for that, I apologize. End quote. However, the damage had already been done by the time Bloomberg had made these remarks. As Lopez describes, Monifa Bandelay who was on the steering committee for the Communities United for Police Reform Action Fund, discussed how, quote, Stop and Frisk was killing our young people in a different kind of way, very deeply emotional mental health, causing people to lose jobs, be late to school. I called it the death by a thousand cuts, end quote. By the time Bloomberg would have made his apology statements regarding Stop and Frisk, when he ran to be the 2020 Democratic presidential nominee, his stop-and-frisk policies would have already caused painful trauma to many people of color. Unfortunately, stop-and-frisk policies are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the systemic racism currently present within the United States criminal justice system. The people who get sent to prison, and for how long they get sent to prison, has become frighteningly dependent on their race. Nina Totenberg illustrates as much with her NPR article titled Race, Drugs, and Sentencing at the Supreme Court, which was published on June 14, 2021. In this article, Totenberg describes how, quote, The U.S. Supreme Court ruled Monday that some crack cocaine offenders sentenced to harsh prison terms more than a decade ago cannot get their sentences reduced under a federal law adopted with the purpose of doing just that. At issue in the case was the long and now notorious history of the sentencing under the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act, 
which established harsh mandatory prison sentences based on the amount of drugs that the defendant possessed or sold. The triggering amount, however, was different for crack cocaine used most by black people and powder cocaine used most often by whites. Indeed, the ratio was 100 to 1, so that a five-year mandatory minimum penalty, for instance, was triggered by the possession of five grams of crack, whereas the same penalty was triggered by 500 grams of powder cocaine. End quote. This racial disparity is really quite startling and is emblematic of the systemic racism that has become so deeply embedded within the criminal justice system. While this racial inequality has been present within the United States criminal justice system since its inception, much of the present-day systemic racism in the criminal justice system can be traced back to and probably be attributed to the implementation of the Rockefeller drug laws. According to Brian Mann's NPR article titled, The Drug Laws That Changed How We Punish, the Rockefeller drug laws that New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller called for in 1973 would subject drug dealers and addicts to mandatory prison sentences of 15 years to life, which was unheard of at the time. The incredibly strict Rockefeller drug laws even applied to individuals caught with small amounts of cocaine, heroin, or marijuana. The ideas that Rockefeller drug laws represented quickly spread to many other states. As Mann recounted, quote, White people were using a lot of drugs in the 1970s and committing a lot of crimes, yet the people being arrested and sent to prison under the Rockefeller laws came almost entirely from poor black and Hispanic neighborhoods, end quote. This racial inequality in those being targeted by law enforcement in New York in the 1970s bears a striking resemblance to the New York of the 21st century, especially when one takes into account Bloomberg's admission that he centralized law enforcement officers in communities of color. As Colleen Walsh indicates in her article in the Harvard Gazette titled Solving Racial Disparities in Policing, Harvard historian Jill Lepore explained how Following the 1990s efforts to professionalize American police forces by using crime statistics to differentiate between various ethnic communities, quote, police patrolled black neighborhoods and arrested black people disproportionately. Prosecutors indicted black people disproportionately. Juries found black people guilty disproportionately. Judges gave black people disproportionately long sentences. And then... After all this, social scientists, observing the number of black people in jail, decided that, as a matter of biology, black people were disproportionately inclined to criminality. End quote. The threat of racial profiling still looms large over communities of color all across the United States. But what can be done about it? Walsh mentions in her article that many police reform activists believe that the best way forward is to divert resources from the police and allocate them towards better support community services, such as housing, education, health care, and stronger economic and job opportunities. Walsh highlights the relationship between racial profiling and mass incarceration very powerfully in her article and explains how, quote, Black and brown people are incarcerated at much higher rates than white people. America has approximately 2.3 million people in federal, state, and local prisons and jails, according to a 2020 report from the nonprofit 
the Prison Policy Initiative. According to a 2018 report from the Sentencing Project, black men are 5.9 times as likely to be incarcerated as white men, and Hispanic men are 3.1 times as likely. Reducing mass incarceration requires shrinking the misdemeanor net along all of its axes, said Natapoff, who supports a range of reforms, including training police officers to both confront and arrest people less for low-level offenses, and the policies of forward-thinking prosecutors willing to charge fewer of those offenses when police do make arrests, end quote. The individual named Natapoff in this quote is Alexandra Natapoff, a Lee S. Kringler professor of law. Her ideas about training the American police officers to better handle arresting low-level offenders are some that most certainly deserve more of an examination if we as a nation ever hope to make substantial progress in reducing the rampant systemic racism present within our criminal justice system. Kirk Burkhalter, who served on the New York Police Department, described one of the most potent and effective potential changes that could be made to improve the criminal justice system in his USA Today article titled, Retired Officer, Give Police a Real Education Before Putting Them on the Streets. Being this, quote, In recent days, activists and politicians have called for changes in how our police departments are funded and managed. But just as essential is throwing out the book on police training and replacing it with a robust system of modern education. That is the first step in changing the job into a full-fledged profession that provides police officers with the intellectual and ethical grounding they need to serve society. Education is different from training. Generally, training means teaching police officers to react to a given situation in the field. Education involves developing the mental and moral tools police officers should possess in order to build strong relationships with the community. It will teach police officers to think about their response to various problems based on vast amounts of knowledge and then take thoughtful action to resolve a problem. End quote. David Gutierrez expands on some of these ideas in his article in the Harvard Kennedy School Institute of Politics titled, Why Police Training Must Be Reformed, explaining how, quote, police training is also problematic. Currently, training focuses too much on firearm skills and omits vital exposure to non-lethal weapons and conflict management, end quote. Given the staggering number of instances in which people of color have had their futures stolen from them due to police officers being far too quick to draw their lethal weapons, I would have to concur with Gutierrez that developing a police training system that emphasizes the use of non-lethal weapons and conflict management instead of purely focusing on firearm skills would be ideal if we want to truly make a meaningful effort to protect the lives of thousands of young people of color growing up right now all across the country. Gutierrez also offers insights into the importance of the relationship that police officers build with the communities they are sworn to protect. Quote, Instead of viewing police officers as guardians of a community, 
The rhetoric around the police often revolves around a warrior image. The political discourse during the so-called war on drugs as foreign occupiers in communities where they waged an everlasting battle against the enemy, which included all residents. But this warrior mentality obscures an important part of policing, the interaction between police officers and the community. People care more about how they are treated by the police than about falling crime rates. When a police officer views himself as a guardian, he or she cares not only about reducing crime, but also about protecting the residents. King County in Washington State developed the lead model to supplant the warrior mentality. Under this model, office training emphasizes listening and explaining the decision-making process to residents. The key of the lead model lies in diverting drug offenses into social services instead of relegating them to the criminal justice system. End quote. One of the most prevalent and dangerous problems with the current criminal justice system is the systemic racism that has become so deeply embedded into it. It is the duty of all Americans to not only recognize the racist institutions that are killing so many members of minority communities, but to also recognize the ways in which we can work to reform these institutions in the hope that someday, on the horizon, some Americans will not have a higher likelihood of facing the full brunt of the criminal justice system than others simply because of their race.